The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Nature's Take. This is the show where we dive deep into the stories that matter in science. In each episode, we pull in some of nature's finest into one room, present them with a topic, and see where the discussion leads us. In this episode, we're diving into generative AI. This is an AI that, as the name suggests, is capable of generating text, images, and more. ChatGPT, Bard, and DAL-E are examples of such AIs, and in the past year, they have been taking the world by storm, raising fears of the death of certain kinds of jobs or sparking hopes that cumbersome tasks could be automated. In science, these AIs promise to transform search engines, summarising dense corpuses of literature, or they could even be used to edit manuscripts. Simultaneously, they are known to write convincing falsehoods, known as hallucinations, and they could be used to produce copious misinformation, potentially making scientists work to discern the truth more difficult. So what impact are these AIs having? What does the future hold for science? To get into this and more, I'm joined by three very knowledgeable guests. I've got Magdalena Skipper. Hi, I'm Magdalena. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Nature. And um, AI, generative AI in particular, has uh, really entered uh, mainstream research uh, as a tool. Um, That's why I'm interested in how it's going to unfold. And we've got Richard Van Norden. Hello, I'm Richard. I'm a features editor at Nature, so on the journalism team, and um, I've been looking at uh, how AI is affecting science and what our readers think of it and commissioning uh, journalistic articles on it over the past year. And last but not least, Jan Sweeney. Hi, I'm Jan. I'm an editor at Nature and I handle all submissions in AI um, and AI applications in the physical sciences. Well, thank you all so much for joining me. Now, as I said, these AIs have been taking the world by storm and From my perspective, this seems to have started with ChatGPT, which is what is known as a large language model. This was released back in November. But I was wondering, has there been a real step change in what these things can do at that point? Or is there just something about ChatGPT that made the world stand up and take notice? I would say that sort of the main thing that OpenAI did was improve a lot in sort of the plausibility of the text and kind of how human it felt when you responded to it. And so the interesting thing is that the underlying sort of language model that was used by ChatGPT had been released before, but then there was what they call like reinforcement learning of using human feedback, which is they actually just got people to train the model to be more human-like in its responses to questions and to do this kind of thing. And that actually is what grabbed people's attention, I think. And the fact that they made it free to use as well. People internally and in other companies who who kind of said they had similar things brewing, but they decided to keep keep a lid in it for the next for the next while just to sort of assess how it went and this kind of stuff. But they kind of went a bit earlier and got a lot of attention, basically. And so, from your perspectives, we're interested in science here. How much have scientists embraced these tools? How much are they using them? Well, um, we've done a few surveys of our readers. Not very scientific. 
But certainly a lot of people are definitely using these tools. So these things are kind of producing very fluent human-seeming text. What they're doing is is returning sort of probabilistic assemblages of words based on, on all the billions of words that they've seen. They're just generating a new word, word by word or token by token. So they kind of write and talk in cliches almost. They're kind of providing you with what looks like a good way to complete sentences and paragraphs. So that's actually great, apparently, for writing code, because when you're writing code, you just want what's the cliched obvious answer to do what I want to do. I mean, I've used it for that. And I know a lot of scientists have used it as an assistant to help them write code. A lot of people have told us this. And then there are also another group of scientists for whom English is not their first language. And they are definitely using this to help them write papers, just rephrase what they've got and just make it smoother and more natural and more fluent. That's a huge use case. When it comes to doing more than that, you know, I know people have written to us about using ChatGPT to write a whole paper, but it strikes me that this is more of a gimmick at the moment than it is anything really useful. And and the other way people might be using it is, unfortunately, perhaps to manufacture completely false narratives. Thinking of it as an assistant or a tool, I think is a really useful way of thinking about it. There is a lot of talk about it. And probably, as we were saying earlier, because they are so intuitive to use, so easy to use, you can use them in ordinary life as well as in your scientific life. So the two begin to blend almost. The fact that scientists use them, I think, is is really very clear. And, And they use them quite a lot. To what extent then they subsequently plug in the results into something like, for example, scientific papers or actually implementing the code that they've, they've uh, developed using it or, for example, in presentations is another matter. But experimenting with it, playing around with it, I think that happens a lot. And I, I sort of almost imagine that many researchers would have a window opened with some kind of a generative AI tool where they're plugging some queries into to get a response from. Yeah, I mean, I would just say as as well as that, there's, so when we talk about ChatGPT, we're thinking of generative AI for text, right? But you can also have generative AI for other types of modalities for images or for sequences of characters, which can represent like genetic sequences or, or, or proteins and this kind of thing. And that's another application is using generative AI to come up with new proteins and new drug designs and this kind of thing, which which is pretty exciting as well. A lot of the research that I kind of see is is maybe less exciting as stuff like, oh, I asked ChatGPT, you know, what drug I should design or what sort of chemical sort of process I should look into. And it, it told me this. What's more exciting is actually sort of training sort of generative AI models in your specific domain with the data that you have in a sort of more sort of intentional way, I guess, and using that for research as well. We did do... Uh reported story on work to make new proteins, which has been going on for many years using AI, but specifically they are now using generative AI to imagine new proteins. And it's kind of the same sort of technology as is used in things like mid-journey, generating these new protein images. And the amazing thing is that when they check them for real, actually quite a large fraction of them actually do what you thought they would do in terms of fitting to some other protein however you've constrained it which surprised me because i thought it was going to be like well this is a lovely picture but it's of no use whatsoever but it turns out actually that you know it's not bad it's not great but it's not bad and it's speeding up the process of dreaming up these new proteins but one thing about that checking process is like i think you can use these things to generate a new protein or to generate new text or whatever or new code 
But what's essential is that you have the taste and discernment to very quickly be able to check whatever it is that's come back. And I think a lot of scientists think this is quite good because they do have that discernment. I remember one scientist saying, I wanted to think of some new way of doing something. And I asked ChatGPT and it came back with 20 ideas of which I instantly knew that 19 were rubbish. And one was quite interesting and I hadn't heard of it before. So that worked great because the scientist could very quickly check and verify that there was one useful thing in what he got back. But the danger comes when you don't know and you say, well, it's spit out five lines of code. It looks like it's correct, so I'm going to use that. And then it turns out it wasn't correct and you didn't know to check. So that's kind of the key distinction, I think, when you're using these tools. And I have to say, when we think about applications of generative AI, obviously there are other types of AI which are increasingly important in in the context of research. But if we just focus on generative AI, these other applications beyond text, I think, are the most interesting ones, certainly from our perspective, from the perspective of a journal, from the perspective of editors. They really expand and accelerate discovery in a real, real sense. And absolutely then being able to use that potential, the, the, the data, the, the models that come out from, from the tools to then advance towards a specific goal or specific topic that, that a researcher has in question, of course, has to be overlain on top of what generative AI tool has created. Mm. And, you know, what would you say are the main sort of risks that especially researchers face when interacting with these tools or from these tools in general? So there's a, there's a few risks. One of them, is, as Richard sort of pointed out, is the kind of false sense of security from getting plausible outputs, basically. It's quite convincing when it comes in text because we're used to sort of interacting with humans socially and this kind of thing. So I think it would depend a lot on the domain, how how likely a scientist and our research in that domain is to fall for like sort of plausible sequences of our proteins or something, this kind of thing. So there needs to be experimental validation etc that that's done and i think the danger is that it you know that this can be hyped up quite a bit and sort of those processes are are sort of not followed as rigorously basically because there's so much hype and and you know and using generative for like drug discovery and this kind of thing another risk is is kind of how it affects the data ecosystem you know when we look at the open internet for example um what OpenAI did was they trained on basically everything that was available to, available to them and then suddenly websites that are public facing like stack overflow which is used by coders a lot to actually like ask coding questions, their traffic has actually plummeted since then because now they're using OpenAI instead. And that's fine in principle. What that means is that Stack Overflow are no longer getting better solutions. So actually the kind of there's this kind of popular image of like the sort of AI or the machine like eating itself basically and training it on its own data. And there's no new fresh data being put in. It is important, though, because, of course, we know that existing data are imperfect, incomplete. And, and of course, one obvious danger that that is quite well known and often talked about is that of of bias in in output from from generative ai and perhaps the most commonly talked about bias is that associated with lack of diversity represented in the outputs and it can be in the context of text but of course it can be in the context of of data because we know these data sets are imperfect and again that in itself should not prevent the use of the output But those who use the output of these generative AI tools have to be very sensitive to the fact that these dangers exist and that the output may be biased. Yeah, I think that's a very good point as well, because the the sort of the trend basically that ChatGPT has has kind of encapsulated is this idea of a base model, 
that's trained on huge diverse data sets right and this means that basically you have one model that's trained on everything and it can perform well in a variety of tasks that you didn't necessarily train it to do and that might work well in some domains in science but then the sort of counter of that is actually just focusing on that one specific task and training a smaller model with better quality data suited for that task and that sort of road of research might just be sort of abandoned or sort of ignored for a while which might be another risk as well skills atrophying maybe abandoning some areas in in favor of this one or just saying well i can always use the llm to improve this but when it comes to writing for instance and I don't need to think so hard about what precisely I am saying and how I want to put it. And then you lose the ability to put your points more succinctly and, and precisely. That's something that certainly I've seen some academics worry about, as well as perhaps the danger of dependence on the large firms that are the ones that have the computing resources to, to build these large pre-trained models. And, you know, if they put their prices up, then too bad. So I've seen people worry about that as a sort of long-term risk of, of reliance on these LLMs. So some of the risks that we've discussed have brought up conversations about regulation of these tools, and we can talk about that a bit more broadly in a second. But I was wondering what Springer Nature, of which Nature is a part, what's their perspective on this as a big publisher of scientific work? A number of discussions started about this, I think probably at the beginning of the year. So we all started talking about ChatGPT and generative AI towards the end of last year. and the beginning of this year, the first manuscripts, for example, appeared in some academic journals co-authored by ChatGPT. So that started conversations around what does it mean when uh, a generative AI tool is used in communicating science? Or indeed, how should we transparently explain that in the process of discovery, of drawing the conclusions, some form of generative AI was used? And as always is the case to begin with, when something new, new tool appears that becomes very prominent, there is a moment of panic. I think the whole community within the context of scientific publishing actually got together pretty quickly to, to begin to think about it. And of course, we did that as well. And so from Springer Nature's perspective, it was very clear to us that clearly it's a useful tool. We want to encourage responsible use of the tool, but responsible is the key word here. So very clearly authorship carries very specific responsibilities with it. And, and that has to remain a domain of, of humans. Generative AI cannot be a co-author, it can be a tool. And as such, it ought to be described in the methods section. So whether it's used to help write, compose the manuscript or do literature survey, or indeed support any other aspect of the paper. I mean, it's worth noting that some other journals have outright banned ChatGPT. So science have banned ChatGPT being used. And some funders have said that it can't be used in review of grants, although they seem to be more concerned about confidentiality, which is to say you're presumably to generate your review, you're putting in the grant information into the tool, which, I mean, is, is obviously important, perhaps not the primary concern from my point of view as a journalist, because I'm worried about people just using LLMs to, you know, generate text and, and images and, and do peer reviews and do papers 
without ever actually bothering to evaluate what they are writing. And that, I suppose, is where the, you know, either you ban them or you, you bring in a transparency requirement. But certainly as a journalist, I'm sort of thinking, I don't really see, Magdalena, how nature can know if someone doesn't declare that they're using an LLM, but they do use it. It doesn't seem to be detectable to me. And For sure. But <laughs> the same applies to when you ban it. Absolutely. You, you have no idea. Absolutely, so yeah. rather than banning something or being really overly cautious with something which is clearly here, in common use and quite frankly here to stay we're offering this opportunity for for transparency mm. so i guess we're all sort of quite interested i think to see how far watermarks are going to be able to be taken if companies say they're working on watermarks that that might make it possible to identify whether a piece of text is there generated as far as i know any watermark can be circumvented if someone tries hard enough but you might make it a lot harder for that to happen. And companies might actually put watermarks in, which they haven't actually done yet. So all this talk of whether they can be circumvented is rather academic. And the detection tools is the other side of this, which, as far as I can see so far, have been a bit of a dead loss because they may be quite good at detecting AI-produced text, but they're not perfect, and that's already a problem. And unfortunately... They also label human-produced text as AI-generated, which is an absolute nightmare for teachers of, of student classes and so on. So to my mind, that makes them possibly useful as a first guide to maybe you should look into this more and, and, and have a look and see if, if your student or your research paper author, you know, has something more to say about how they generated the material, perhaps. As I said, we can broaden this out to wider regulation. Uh, Richard, I know you've been sort of looking into what governments and different large organizations are doing about these technologies where are they landing on these tools and would it have any impact on research the regulation is a sort of massive wide question about all kinds of ai but specifically on generative ai you got the eu's ai act which has been passed by parliament but not yet passed by the other bodies of the eu might get passed by the end of the year and that at the moment says that producers of generative ai tools must list out all the training data including any copyrighted training data which seems impractical but it is in the text of the act and it also says that they must be uh transparent about when the llms are being used which again seems a bit impractical but they're only thinking about this in the context of deep fakes in the context of videos or images that portray people as saying or doing things that they didn't and it's all non-consensual that's what they're worried about there isn't text saying this must be transparent all the time China's gone much further. They've got quite draconian rules. You must be transparent every time you use an LLM. And it will remain to see how that's enforced. Something that has been missing for me in the conversations around regulation and the effort towards coming up with regulation is actually true collaboration across governments, researchers who do this work in the private sector context and researchers who do it in the context of academia. I've seen groups getting together just within academia, trying to come up with a set of rules, wishing then to impose them further, or just as we mentioned, companies themselves who have already released very powerful tools come up with their regulation. But I think in order for us to be really, collectively, to be really successful, those different stakeholders, if you like, ought to really come together. That would be the most valuable 
in terms of where the development should go, where it should not go, also providing guidelines for users. It would also be most valuable because, of course, if we are talking about the use of generative AI in the context of science, science, of course, is a global enterprise that unfolds both in the private and the public sector. So these rules need to be effective and appropriate for all these settings. Otherwise, we will have this sort of balkanized piecemeal solution. And the true collaborative approach, as far as I've seen so far, is still missing. I would agree with that, especially if we look at sort of what's been happening before generative AI became sort of the the main AI that we talked about. There were automated decision-making systems that have been around for a very long time. And much of the regulation in the EU and the US, to some degree, have been focusing on those as well. And Richard talked about sort of being able to explain the decisions that, that came out of these systems. And that has been talked about for quite a while. But it's unclear whether when academics talk about explainable AI, it's often very different to what the lawyers and the regulators talk about. And there is not much dialogue there. So I think, I mean, maybe you might correct me, Richard, as whether there's been much progress on that. But yeah. I think there's a lot of work to be done still. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, what is in the EU AI Act? What does it really mean to say a decision must be explainable yeah. is is very unclear. And that, I mean, there's already a right in the EU to be explained with if an automated decision that affected you was taken, you're supposed to be demand an explanation of why did that happen? How did that happen? But unfortunately, almost none of the decisions that are aided by algorithms are fully automated. Ad placement is is one of them. Adverts they're sort of now done by an automated process, but almost nothing else is fully automated. There's always a sort of person saying, "Well, the program suggests that this prisoner should not be released because my AI suggests they're high risk." Right? They're, they're still making the decision, and so this this EU right doesn't quite come into play there. And so, yes, there's sort of words about explainable AI in legal texts, but what does that mean <laughs> is rather unclear. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if, is there actually a way to make these tools so you can understand the decisions they've made? I think it, it very much depends on who you ask, right? But the simpler, the better, usually. And we're quickly veering towards a very complex sort of system. So I think it's becoming less and less feasible if we haven't really reached consensus with these very simple decision-making processes that involve things like decision trees and, and this kind of thing. Then it's, I'm not very optimistic about the capacity to have explainable decisions coming out of LLMs anytime soon, especially when we look at how kind of brittle they are. If we just give different, what they call prompts, different ways of asking a question to an LLM to ChatGPT, you get vastly different responses. You ask it to explain itself and it gives you some sort of logic back, but you have no idea whether that logic is, well, it, it doesn't, you know, it's just giving plausible responses, right? That is not an actual explanation for what's going on inside. Many in the community are very worried that these LLMs specifically and other types of generative AI are not very explainable. And so I think one sort of route that people are kind of floating is actually just thinking about applications specifically being like there are certain applications which are just high risk and too risky. And so you just should not use these complex systems. You know, even if we think we can have an explanation, it's not really going to be foolproof in the way that we think it might be. So there are certain sort of domains in which you just shouldn't use them, basically. But then there are others in this rather than in specific domains in more general context who simply ask, does it matter that we don't know how they work exactly? And, you know, I've heard comparisons made to the human brain. We really don't understand a lot of how our complex behaviours are generated, sort of emergent property of, of the organ. 
And then, of course, we're studying it, but we still don't understand. So what does it, does it matter? Uh, so that's an interesting position, right? I suspect, from my perspective, the difference really is in the application that you were just talking about. For some applications, it sort of doesn't matter as long as you're careful and you probe and maybe ask, put the question or the challenge in different ways. But in other applications, it really doesn't matter that you understand it. Now, this is a field that I think is fair to say has had a lot of hype in it. So I wondered what your perspectives were on these tools. Are they worthy of the hype? I think they will change a lot. They're already changing a lot. If you really think about the totality of AI tools, they are transforming the way science is done, how questions can be asked, what kinds of questions we can ask and what timescales we can answer them. So I think we will see a change. Now, your question was about hype. And of course, in some cases, that hype has led to extreme opinions, such as, for example, we should not go there. We will destroy science as an approach as we know it today, and they will no longer be human scientists driving our discovery and exploration. I certainly don't subscribe to that. I do see it as a suite of tools and, and as any set, set of tools when used judiciously, it, you know, the, the prospects are fantastic as an opportunity. So I, I myself don't particularly like to use the word hype or think about hype because that often is associated with negative connotations. I think AI tools are worthy of the attention that they're getting because the potential is great. I think the hype is in the language to describe them. I mean, I hope all our listeners know that, you know, these are generative models. They're providing a sort of probabilistic representation of what they've been trained on, but they're not thinking, they're not reasoning, they're not understanding, but they can still be very useful. But when people go too far in anthropomorphizing them and talking about, you know, uber intelligence, generative AIs, that's that that to my mind is hype that's not really reckoning with, with what we have and it's sort of um speculative and speculation is used to drive up investment and to sort of say you know this is this is the next big thing and so it's a bit of a balancing act because they could be really interesting and useful but we we want to think about what they really are and it's made further confusing by the fact that they are really mysterious and there will be some researchers who will say what is going on inside these neural networks really is some kind of you know some kind of representation of the world they're trained on does mean some kind of understanding in a way but it is not the same as as we would see it in the sense of thinking or anthropomorphized ideas of those words so that's kind of where the hype comes in i think i think the wider concern hype i suppose it's sort of a bit out of science's domain the idea that wider society you know a bad actor could use these things to do bad things that is all very true. I mean, that's still true now of a lot of the technology we have. Um, so that's all, yeah, that all worries me as well. But it's kind of like it's outside the domain of, of science. So I guess not really for this discussion. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would definitely agree with Richard that the hype is most of the hype sort of the risks of the hype rather are outside of the domain of science as well. Investors hyping up their products, this kind of stuff. It can be used to argue against regulation because if, you know, a certain country starts regulating technology, then they'll fall behind other countries. And so there'll be this sort of almost like an AI arms race dynamic. That's probably where I would be most concerned about with the hype. In science specifically, I think I think it's worthy of the attention it's getting in many ways. There, there's going to be so many tasks that form part of the scientific pipeline, data processing, 
uh, how to process images, parts of the paper writing process, all these things could become a lot more seamless and could just really, you, we won't really see it in terms of like headlines and papers, right? Or even our co-authors as we know. But I think it, it will speed up science to a considerable degree, I think. So what would you say as sort of a final speculative question, it, does the future hold for these technologies and for science as a result of it? Well, definitely, I do think that we're going to be seeing generative AI as the kind of glue holding different parts of science together, by which I mean you're going to be asking natural language questions, how to interpret this, what does what does this data mean? And you're asking that as a natural language question, and the system is coming back and saying, well, I, you know, I am a system that's been trained on this kind of stuff, and and I'm coming back in fluent words with this answer. You know, previously you would have needed to be a specialist, and now maybe you don't need to be a specialist, and you can use these LLMs everywhere. And with that comes the risk of, do you really understand what's going on with that data? But the benefit of being able to very quickly interrogate a lot of data that you couldn't before. So expanding on what Richard said, exactly analogously, I think we'll see generative AIs used as tools to synthesize information that is already out there, not necessarily in the form of data, but for example, written text, papers, books, other types of publications. And that, I think, will open up an opportunity for so-called non-expert entering much more swiftly into another discipline with which they were previously less familiar. So there is an opportunity. Yes, there are dangers that they may not be able to scrutinize the the output just as uh, efficiently as someone who has background in their discipline. So again, we're coming back to that tool, tool which will speed up, simplify, and by virtue of doing so, open up doors, whether it's data of any kind, including text type of data, published information. I mean, I should say, I I also do expect a bit of a nightmare of fake papers and data. I expect we'll see that, and I expect we'll see a backlash, and I expect we'll see more of a kind of verification procedures becoming more sort of just institutionalized part of the whole endeavor because of the possibility of manufactured but convincing data and text. I mean, that, that's the kind of sceptical view. This is true, but, but I'm, I'm a forever optimist. So I, I completely agree with you. There will be those bad actors in, in science and research as well. But I view it as a sort of a different flavor of what effectively already happens. It will be another way that somebody may wish to fake a paper. But let's face it, considering how much research is done, how much is published, that deliberate manipulation, faking, is still a tiny, tiny minority. So that's my optimist view to counterbalance your perspective. Well, it's nice to end on an optimistic note. I want to thank you all so much for joining me. That's all we've got time for this time. Nature's Take will return, but for now, thank you all so much for joining me. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature portfolio. More information at go.nature.com plus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.